Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield College in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. All right, my name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Jason Tosh at Stoller. It's March 5th, 2020. Jason, thanks so much for joining Thank us you. today. Yeah, I'm very excited. Let's we'll start with the first question, most important question. Why wine? Why, why wine growing? Hmm. I have always loved good food, and wine comes with that. Um, you know, in my Corvallis days, um, well, I've been around Oregon wine for a long time. My folks drank wine when I was a kid. Probably had my first sip of wine when I was, you know, too young, I would say. We always had wine with Christmas dinner. We had sparkling wine for Christmas morning with croissants. That was a family tradition. You know, my folks drank Blue Nun. Have you heard of that? It's disgusting. <laughs> Uh, but they evolved, you know. All around us out in Banks, Oregon, we had, um, well, we had Sanford Reese or Sandy Reese who mm -hmm. planted, uh, I think, Elk, Elk Cove's Wind Vineyard or Wind Ridge, I think it's called mm -hmm. now. So that was my cousin or uh, friend Chris Sitzman's grandpa's vineyard. And Sanford or Sandy, I guess everybody called him, was iconic to the to the pioneers you know dick ponzi knew them. they all knew each other right so um my first experience with oregon wine and pinot was in his dad's cellar basement where they made the wine from that vineyard and i was probably 12 at that time when we took a couple sips off some carboys of fermenting juice uh that was pretty much my first experience and I don't know I never forgot wow what is all this agriculture going on around here so it'd been in the back of my mind and fast forward to the getting into food I worked in the restaurant industry during college uh, introduced to food and drink then uh, had an opportunity to work Tai with Tai vineyards for the 93 vintage Sterling Fox was the Barney's right-hand man at that time and uh, he invited me to come in just to work the line, you know, raking grapes. And I guess, I think that's kind of when it all started, like this idea of how much fine wine, you know, how cool fine wine is, you know. I got into it at that point. We were, I lived with another French man, Philippe Henri from, he was a college kid with us in Corvallis. Philippe, uh, Philippe's mom and dad brought over Chateauneuf de Pape from France with in Sterling and Philippe and I sat down. His mom cooked us this French feast and fed us these great wines and we shared these Oregon wines. I, it might be at that moment that it kind of clicked for me that this, this is cool. I love this about Oregon. I had no idea that this was even interesting outside of this place, but okay, this could be a possibility mm -hmm. um, for me to get involved with. and and. Uh, yeah, that was probably the moment that I felt it. Uh, that next spring after the harvest of 93, so spring of 94, I guess, Sterling called me and said, hey, you want to help me plant a vineyard? I know this guy, Steve Wybra. He, you know, Steve Wybra, I got to meet him. He, he was the owner of Wybra Vineyards, uh, kind of a wealthy businessman from Bend owned a strip mall or something and had a cool house out in Sun River. You know, we're just college kids. Invited us out to Sun River to go skiing and, and introduced us some great wines. He employed us to plant his vineyard in, down outside of Monroe. And so that spring, Sterling and I and another buddy of mine planted Wybra Vineyard. 
that was my first foray into vineyards. Um, that was cool. You know, I spent two long days planting grapes and uh, just having a good old time. So that's when it all started for me. What made you, when, when you were offered the chance to work at Taiyi to do a kind of a grunt labor job with Barney and Ring, what made you even want to do that? Uh, the idea that there might be wine involved. I mean, quite simply, you know, I'm a college kid. I didn't have access to, you know, good stuff. So, and just interesting, crazy. Here I am in the horticulture department at Oregon State, and Bernadine Strick at the time was teaching uh, a small fruits and berries class at Oregon State in the horticulture department. We didn't have a viticulture or enology per se department um, in like we do now, mm -hmm. like we have at the Oregon Wine Research Institute. Mm -hmm. um, at that time, it was just horticulture with this focus on grapes or floriculture, you know, not grapes, but uh, fruits, floriculture, turf. Mm -hmm. And I took a class with Bernadine. We had a wine tasting in that class as well. That at that time, and so that that experience visiting the Alpine Vineyard or the Woodhall Vineyard that they had out in Alpine, um, Oregon State, that was part of that class as well. Uh, meeting Barney, meeting Steve Price at the time, uh, made me think, hey, let's try this out. Let's see what it's like. You know, this is fun. Um, and so, yeah, I just said, hey, here's an opportunity. Let's, let's give it a shot. I mean, I was young and open to any, anything at the time. I didn't know exactly what I was going to do. It was going to be growing plants of some kind. Let's, let's, uh, let's follow the path of this fun wine-related uh, experience. So I did that. So what happens next? You're in, you're in horticulture school and you're, you're kind of dabbling in grapes. So you've planted a vineyard now. Uh, yeah. What happens next? Well, I left college uh, with, a gra with a bachelor's degree in horticulture. And um, I went home and moved back in with my folks for the summer just to kind of figure out which, what I'm going to do with this degree. Uh, I was heavy into surfing at the time, so I spent that whole summer just surfing uh, into that fall as well. And I got a call from a friend of my folks uh, through their church, uh, this guy named Rob Dressler, who had an opportunity to come work for a, a floriculture company or a cut flower grower company called Oregon Roses. And home for me at the time was out way out in the woods, out in the coast range outside of Banks, Oregon, up towards past Buxton, Buxton on the way to Vernonia. I mean, we called it Vernoware because it's really, it was in the middle of nowhere, 45 minutes from the city, but it seemed like 300 miles from the city. And, uh, but close to the coast, right? So 50 minutes and I was in the, in the, in the ocean. We, um, I, took, I took a job. I had an opportunity to get on board with a cut flower grower and become eventually the vice president of grower operations for that company and was with them for 10 years farming 10 acres of hydroponic greenhouse roses and Gerber daisies um, and uh, 400 other acres of floriculture crops including, including Christmas greens. So outdoors we had 80 crops we grew, indoors we had 80 varieties of grapes and it's very intense um, horticulture, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of chemistry and a lot of, of uh, hard science deployed to grow a superior flawless product. Tolerance for blemishes and things on cut flowers is pretty much zero. So that, that whole system of farming 
exposed me, you know, to a world of many moving parts that uh, are are just very intensive. Um, like I was saying, the chemistry we would. Uh, inject fertilizers into the uh, the water of the roses that would wash over the roots uh, anywhere from six to ten times a day at the precise amount. We had greenhouses that opened and closed and based on a computer program I put together and um, but all that is chemical inputs and all that intensity going into this crop and then there's a waste stream out. I started to develop a, maybe a my philosophy and openness towards that style of farming and growing in general for any crop started to come to question in myself. Like I was exposed to many different pesticides in that, you know, not dangerously, but just as a happenstance of the farming system. And just start to develop a disinterest in pursuing that as a, as a, a lifelong career. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I felt like maybe this wasn't for me. Mm -hmm. You know, my internship at Oregon State was in organic farming. And here I was um, farming the extreme opposite of organic. And so, you know, I, I kind of got into a situation in 2004 where I'm like, this is maybe time for change. Mm -hmm. And that's when I got another call from Sterling. I heard the Ponzi's need a vineyard manager. And I'm like, huh? Who are the Ponzi's? <laughs> I had been 10 years outside of the wine industry. And yes, I'd had multiple vineyard managers. You know, a lot of my friends and colleagues in college in horticulture became vineyard managers. Mm -hmm. Sterling became a, his, he was in food sciences studying winemaking uh, and that side of things. He eventually just got into vineyard management because that's where his interest lied. But uh, Matt Shea, who now uh, farms for Bernardus down in California, he worked up here. He helped plant the PPV sites, which were, which are now um, the KJ sites. Mm -hmm. or, so, you know, Matt Shea planted a lot of those, like Grand Moraine, and he, he planted um, uh, Zena. He planted Zena, working for Bob Bailey. He's now down at Bernardus. So that was a main one. He lived with me for a while in that house when I was rose farming. Um, yeah, just there's a community, a constant community of my peers running through, pushing me to go to Grapes for some reason. I'm like, dude, I'm, I'm doing fine. I'm making money. I'm having fun. Look at this. I got a bachelor pad to hang out in. It was sweet. But uh, yeah, the chemicals thing that we had to use, that was tough. So grapes don't require a lot of that intensive farming. In fact, grapes are one of the only crops not, you know, grown with a yield, ba a heavy yield-based model. Like quality and yield are somewhat inverted. You know, they don't, they're convert, they're inverse to each other at, at some level. There's limits to that, but uh, yeah, less is more. Okay, can lose some of this chemistry. There's not, not a lot of pests and diseases. I understand every, every pest and disease that a grape could get. I understand the nutrition patterns of grapes. You know, I've been farming perennial row crops for 10 years that are super intensive grapes. This looks like fun and it looks healthy and I love wine still because all that time I've been consuming wine. Yes, it was the Rancho Zabico, but here and there I'd get shots of Pinot, so. 
Yeah, so I, I jumped ship and, and took the job with Ponzi's. They were gracious enough to offer it to me. And it was a major life change. Uh, you know, I was taken care of at Oregon Roses and sacrificed a good paying job with, a, with housing and everything to reintroduce myself to this new career. Um, and that was 2004 I did that. What were your initial impressions as you got into that? I loved it. I loved it. I loved the, the, the joy that everybody felt there. I loved the Ponzi family. They're good or a good family. Not that that, I mean, I guess it does weigh a little bit, you know, feeling safe with Oregonians around there. I love their, I love their Italian roots and learning about them and learning about the history and working with Dick. He was a, he's a great guy. Um, he was very influential and intense and, and meant a lot to me to learn from him and listen to his story. And he knew, you know, I would mention names here and there of the people I grew up around, like Aldi Howard. And he, Aldi Howard was a, a guy my parents went to high school with. And Dick goes, you know Aldi Howard? Yeah, because Aldi had helped Dick with some of his first vintages back in the 70s. And there's just a lot of this connectivity from the Forest Grove, Tualatin Valley, to this winemaker. I would argue one of the best winemakers in the Tualatin Valley in, in Oregon. I, you know, that, that family grows and makes good wine, there's no doubt. And I was able to learn a lot and pick the systems up and make good changes and had two extremely successful vint vintages of five and six there. 2005 being one that was rainy and floated with mildew and the vole outbreak of 2005 saw old vines crashing everywhere but we, we, we didn't experience any of those. I think they liked that a lot. And then 2006 was a bumper crop year one of the largest grape crops I've ever seen and when we brought in the mother load and I think Maria was extremely happy with the amount of grapes she had to sell that year of high quality. Um, you know the old valley floor from the historical winery they had there that old valley floor vineyard they had there hadn't been producing much in years and I was able to turn that around by doing some deep root pruning in 2005 that actually gave them a crop they couldn't believe in 2006, I couldn't believe. We did root pruning works in a lot of, of crops to promote, you know, flower bud development. Oh, you're cutting my roots. I'm dying. I need to, ha I need to put these babies out. So that goes to flower and seed, right? So the next year we had just huge amounts of fruit, which is all that fruit is, is the, is the covering of the baby seed, the progeny evolution at play and tricking evolution at that moment was kind of a I still look back on that going whoa that's a lot of fruit uh, <laughs> what are we going to do with that that was fun you mentioned the, the sort of the the, Im, the impact that working with Dick especially had on you what were some of the things you took as you were getting into grape growing what were some of the influences he had on you some of the impacts he had on you um I just think working with the land and thinking about some of the old ways that uh, from Italy, you know, we, we planted hillside, terrace style. He liked how I terraced uh, a section of that vineyard for muscat that they planted at the bottom of his Aurora site. I think one thing that I remember is that he was not too excited about having Gewurztraminer planted near his house. I don't know if he wants everybody to know that, but Dick has Gewurztraminer planted right next to his house. He was, he's probably still upset with me about that. 
I, I, I liked a lot of what they had going on. You know, the, they and they purchased or acquired the Five Mountains parcel, which became Abatina Vineyard, Linda Vista Vineyard. It's part of one of their the Abatina section of that vineyard, which is their hundred dollar bottle, or I don't even know what it is now. Uh, that was a clonal trial from the, I think the, like 79 that OSU brought in from France, I mean, all Pinot, it's France, Switzerland, Spain, you know, all of Europe. And that clonal trial was placed in there, it was placed at that site, it was placed at a couple others and I can't remember exactly where. And we went through and um, I think one of the main exciting things, not just from Dick, but Dick and Louisa. They wanted a, a field selection of the of the of that block of that section of the Abatina section taken and propagated to plant to their mountain home vineyard, which was I I was uh, lucky enough in 2006 to be able to develop and plant that vineyard. And all of the Pinot there is a field a, a selection masse. Masail, I think is how you pronounce it, that Louisa had me blow up off the Abatina block. Unknown mixes of clones and varieties from, from that, from all over the world, from that clonal trial, that's the parent material for that entire Pinot Noir vineyard at, uh, at that home site. That uh, project, that mountain home project was Chardonnay, mostly a little, I think, I think it was mostly Chardonnay and Pinot Noir, or mostly Pinot Noir with some Chardonnay at the bottom. I don't know what else is there now. I didn't finish the project. They had a cool old walnut orchard um, that we didn't remove. We wanted to keep that because I think Dick was, Dick's an experimentalist. That's the other thing. Dick wasn't just into wine. Wine was a passion, but you know, so was craft beer. So was anything delicious, tasty, thoughtful, artistic. I mean, Dick kind of showed uh, uh, me that it, you know, there are a generation of people who weren't just who were exploring the boundaries of good taste. That's what I would say. We're bringing good taste into an area in the Tualatin Valley that didn't have a lot of it, you know, coming out of the '70s. So I, I've admired him a lot. Still do. So what happened after 2006? 2006, I got a call from, I, I might have been Sterling again for all I know. I mean, this guy's a theme and, you know, he's still one of my best friends. Like, we lived together in Corvallis for a couple of years. But yes, Sterling, um, hey, Anime is hiring. You might want to think about that. I'm like, ah, I don't know, I'm pretty happy here. But then I, I got, I called and just to see, you know, just started fishing around to see, you know, I mean, I will say that, you know, I needed a, a paycheck. I just bought a house and needed needed a little beefier paycheck. And I, I think that was the main reason why I moved to Anami. Uh, and I saw a great opportunity to expand on some good foundation of some good dirt. I mean, Willa Kinsey soils, found out that they had the Laurel, the Laurel Wood soils up there on uh, off of Bell Road. Um, had an opportunity to double the size of, the, of their vineyards, so yeah, I made I jumped ship, uh, reporting to a guy named Craig Camp, who's managing mm -hmm. Troon mm -hmm. now as the GM. Good guy, mm -hmm. um, Craig. You know, introduced me to the uh, the sales world of wine sales. So I mean, Craig took the vineyard manager role very seriously. He 
I, I was impressed. I didn't think the farmer got much credit, and Craig's like, you're gold on the road. You know, when, you, you're, when you're a vineyard manager or the winemaker, we're gonna take you out and introduce you to these distributors, and they are going to have a heyday. So he took me to New York, I did Chicago. Craig was a really important person to introduce me to that, and so, I was excited to take that job at Anime for that opportunity to become part of this core leadership team mm -hmm. at a winery mm -hmm. and make good change. And Bob Pamplin, you know, he was an absent owner, not a completely absent owner, but just more of like, here's the amount of money you get. Uh, do Be creative, you know, be creative about it. It wasn't an exorbitant amount. You know, his goal, Bob Pamplin's goal was to invest in his land and expand his properties, and he wanted the best quality, and that's what he was told Jason. I want the best quality grapes. I want, I want you to tell me what, that these are gonna be the best quality grapes. Uh, you know, I don't wanna even mess around. Mm -hmm. And he, Bob would present me land down on the valley floor in the Tuolumne Valley and ask me if I could grow. I'd say, no, this is not, you know, okay, well, we're gonna go up here to this hill. We're gonna, he, he just took advice. Bob took my advice and, and uh, we produced, I think, some of the nicer wines I've had in a while. In, in Oregon, out of that winery for years, we were producing beautiful wines. Thomas, I met Thomas Hausman at Ponzi. He was the assistant winemaker under Louisa. And we just hit it off and had so much fun. And it was kind of a rowdy boys club. And, you know, Thomas and I would go four-wheeling up, up into the coast range together. And he liked my egg salad sandwiches, by the way. <laughs> He loves me. I'm like the best egg salad sandwich That's, maker on the planet. It's on tape now. I don't so. care. I record that. I, I want that marked okay. as my legacy. Okay. Put it on my gravestone. <laughs> Mr. Egg Salad. Mr. Egg Salad. <laughs> Thompson and I had a good time, you know, and, and here we had free creative license. And we had that for 10 years together. Um, sure. Like, maybe like brothers, we fought and hated each other, and you know, he'd vouch for that, you know, but I'll always look back to that time as super great for me and favorable, and I hope Thomas feels the same way. I'm sure he does to some extent. Um, you know, he's a great winemaker. There's no doubt about it. So yeah, having that creative license allowed us to explore varieties and clones and, you know, uh, to down to the two-ton fermenter. And, you know, at that time in the Oregon wine industry, there were 300 other wineries, right? That's 2005, six, seven was the first year at Anami. We had a, we had a challenging vintage, still my favorite vintage is seven. Uh, so 2007 was on, you know, it still is tasting incredible. Mm -hmm. It's still incredible. And it was a lean vintage. We had a little bit of a experience with that last year in 19, but not as much heavy rain as we had in 19. And so we were able to work around all that. And the grapes were solid sound. You know, we didn't have the split and disease pressure that showed up um, in 19 and 13 for a lot of the valley. Mm -hmm. There weren't any fruit flies causing us, you know, VA problems like there were in those vintages. Seven was a beautiful, lean, solid, elegant vintage, and my, still my favorite. Mm -hmm. uh, and Thomas and I stepped into that and rose above that challenge and kind of set the course for how things were gonna go for the next 10 years and really had a good time. Good, I made a good decision. Um, 
all that experience was gained through through just being part of an open creative team. And then, you know, you get, it, you get your eyes into the business side of things. And then also 2000, one thing I will say, at Ponzi, I was introduced to the live program. Um, that was a major core uh, movement for me. Uh, again, Sterling was involved on that at the time. Uh, Louisa was involved on the board at the time. And Louisa asked if I would attend a lot of those meetings. Mm -hmm. She asked if I would attend a lot of the research meetings for the research wing of our state's you know, the Oregon Wine Board at the time was sponsoring research down in OSU, and there was a committee formed mm -hmm. in 2005 or in 2003 to oversee the dollars, tax dollars spent on that research. I joined that committee in 2005 uh, and got really involved with the research side and the sustainable farming side of this industry, thanks to Louisa and Sterling and others. And in 2006, I think I took a seat on the board of LIVE and began kind of evolving that program and maturing that program to, um, with that board. I was on that board for 10 years, um, kind of defining what it, it means to be LIVE. And I think there's still, I mean, like I said, like I was, like everyone knows, sustainability is a continuum. It's a work in progress. That, that LIVE will always change. Even now, they're introducing carbon accounting for the vineyard side. They did it for the winery side. Um, a, a viticulturist, Erica Miller, working for us here at Stola right now is in, uh, on that creative um, side of uh, things, kind of like vetting the carbon farm, uh, carbon accounting in the farm mm -hmm. system uh, right now. I'm really excited to have her on board here and continuing the live legacy. You know, live still, represents 30 to 40 percent of the all grape grown grape acreage here in the state i wanted to see that continue or grow mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. sustainable good stuff um yeah but on to me let's see where were we i was going to ask you I'm, I'm curious before we go i have a question about on too but yeah. i'm curious you, you mentioned coming in with your horticulture background and, mm -hmm. and grapes seeming fun, yeah. uh, easy, you were yeah. prepared. What happened while you were farming that maybe caught you off, farming grapes that kind of caught you off guard? What were you not prepared for? Um, I would say <clears throat> I was not prepared for um, just the miles and miles and miles of grapes that are <laughs> existing in a simple vac Every Every acre is probably about a mile of wine grapes. That's a lot of linear foot farming. And the fact that, so you're not uh, spraying a lot of chemicals or nasty stuff out there, but you are having to manage that crop intensively, making you know 15 to 20 passes by hand every year to do the various crop techniques and manage that canopy. Um, you know, I'd grown some similar crops like Forsythia has a trellis. That's a cut flower that's very commonly used for uh, Chinese New Year and things like that. So. Um, that, that crop required a lot of handwork too, so I had experience with trellis work and trellis maintenance. But I think just the crew, you know, trying to do so much with a pretty minimal crew, mm -hmm. you know, that was a, that kind of caught me off guard. The whole vole thing I had, had had experienced in holly orchards I was farming, so that one I was prepared for. We, we busted out this tool called the rodinator. Yeah, the Ponzi's have a rodinator. It's a, it's a propane cannon that puts a sound wave down in the ground. You put it down in the tunnel, you pop it off, and the sound wave repercusses through and 
stops them in their tracks, so to speak. So we used that heavily in 2005 and stopped the bull. Just the whole set of different problems that are inherent to grapes are not too uncommon in most crops, you know. Powdery mildew, you know, in the Willamette Valley, every, every crop. Sp uh, mites in, you know, are the only real insect issue, every crop. Um, botrytis, almost every fruit crop. Hmm. So just knowing, having the knowledge coming out of cut flowers into that, I was pre had a pretty good base. Um, it was just a matter of cutting my teeth on the new crop more than anything. And jumping into a culture that's a little less, you know, I mean, it's not boring. What, you know, having these beautiful long farm lunches with wine midday, that blew my socks off. This food is amazing. This wine is delicious. It is lunch and I'm in the middle of my work day. Thank you so much. <laughs> I have made a right choice. I was not prepared for that. So at Anami, you have a you have about a decade of, of fairly uh, loose creative license, as you yeah, said. Yeah, uh, right. What were your did you, did you have goals in mind, and, did, and, and were there certain certain successes that you look back on yeah. more, more most fondly? Yeah, just having having planted what I think is a great vineyard in um, what they call their Robert and Justin Grant vineyards. Perfect elevations, perfect aspects, perfect clone selections. Really, a lot of select, uh, really delicious fruit came off that, and and the, my favorite is just the the wines that we created. And then Thomas and I had a good relationship with some folks in Sonoma County and Napa County. We a couple times made trips down there and get, gathered uh, information from folks and made some trades and introduced ourselves. And we uh, and then work also we did a, had a purchased fruit program at. Economy, so I got into purchasing and negotiating contracts at that time, the sales side of thing. But my, I think the biggest win of Anami is being free to explore all facets of the wine business. You know, nobody ca carefully held guard of their department information or secrets. Mm -hmm. Like it was such a, it's a small enough winery. It, you know, at the time it was 11,000 cases or 10,000 cases, and we moved it to 22,000 cases. Um, watching that grow and watching all parts of the business, we were all exposed to all parts of the business as that four-person core team. And um, I learned a lot based on just having the ability to be in the room when important things were discussed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I, I realized, you know, from the vineyard side, or I felt like from the vineyard side, a lot of the value, it's very tough to make a dollar just growing vineyards and selling the fruit. Like the real value of owning and operating a vineyard is selling the land if you really need to have money. Um, you know, that's how it was then and still is to some extent. It's hard to make a lot of money unless you have a massive amount of acres and farm for yield, which helps. Um, which helps with the bottom line, that yield thing. That's one thing I want to talk about eventually. Uh, but that was the best thing, is just the whole, being exposed to the whole business and being able to have a say on business matters from the wine and wine business side of things, especially in the growing state. Um, back to that idea, that, that yield-driven model. So in 2005, when I got into it, it was two tons per acre, eight-foot spacing. That's the deal. You know, that's where we're, our quality is. And, and that equates to about 0 0.65, 0 0.7 pounds per linear foot of row. 
and you get really good quality at that rate, you know, but you don't get a lot of volume. And I think the, the work that Patty Skinkus and getting Patty Skinkus here in 2007, 2008 to start working on yield versus quality ideas, that's one of the biggest changes that I have witnessed in our industry, and I, th I hear this from others as well, um, that that has changed the economic equation of owning and operating a vineyard when we realized that through wine trials, two tons per acre is just as good as three tons per acre, and in some cases is bucked by delicious wine at three and a quarter, you know, a half tons per acre. Like this tons per acre idea is sub very subjective. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And people started pushing the boundaries of yield. He's still creating these incredibly organ wines. Um, that just threw its all, the system all on its head. That added a third more, you know, profit to the bottom line of vineyard operators. That's the biggest change I've seen in viticulture mm -hmm. is being if you're getting buy-in from everybody that quality can happen at these higher tonnages. Mm -hmm. Now there, I think, which was somewhere between three and five tons, there's a difference that's made. We, you know, as we're still in a place here where it's hard to get them ripe to the, you know, let's talk about last year, 2019. I mean, you know, less tonnage got riper earlier. The earlier sites like Stoller, uh, it got riper earlier. We made it through the hard times and had some rich, beautiful, fully ripened wines coming in at 23, 24, 25 bricks. Uh, not everybody got to see that this last year, but this hill did it. Um, and then judicious crop, you know, yield yields that we, like the upper panels we thin for more of a premium program. Those will be set at, we, we use pounds per linear foot here. We'll set those around 0.85 pounds per linear, which translates roughly to two and a half tons per acre, three tons per acre. Um, that's like one cluster, one, two clusters per shoot. Uh, you know, one cluster, two cluster, one cluster, two cluster, or one, two, two, one, two, two. You know, that's how we deliver uh, information to our staff to get the right level of crop set. Keep it simple. Um, but. Yeah, you'll you'll notice a difference, and so that whole mo yield model change—that's that's, that's mm -hmm. a massive impact on our industry, a beneficial one, and helps our businesses. And I don't mind setting a larger yield. I don't, I'm not—I I really don't. I think it helps. All of our soils are so young; we have so much water for the most in most years going in. If you know, if you can judiciously use reduced deficit irrigation um, if, or none at all preferably um, you can maintain very high quality off these rich soils that are still so young mm -hmm. I'm curious as you as you got exposed to the business side mm -hmm. of the industry maybe for, maybe for the first time in that kind of in that kind of uh, quantity mm -hmm. uh, what were your impressions of the of the industry in general and its business practices at that point? Did you have any? Did you? Did no, you, I, I was just meeting people, so I had no judgments. I, I didn't know. Um, just my gut feeling felt like there's this economic law of scale involved here, like where, okay, 
if you're growing this much, then you can handle this much without having to have a marketing person or a, you know, full, like you can grow it, make it, sell, sell it, travel, have a really good life and get some profit. And, you know, at that stage, it was like a couple could manage 15, you know, 15 acres probably, do all the farming themselves, make the wine and travel and still make, you know, almost a couple hundred thousand dollars in profit to share and live off of and have a good life. Um, and then after that, there's this, I learned that there's this real gray zone or I had the gut feeling there's this real gray zone where in the middle, it's going to be, you're needing more help, but you're not, you don't have enough volume to pay for that help until you get to about 20,000 cases, 25,000 cases, 30,000 cases, you know, that scale of operation really and production really plays a huge important role in this business. Meaning you, you t keep it small and you can make it. Otherwise, you're going to have to look to increase your volume of production to pay for all the things you're going to need to have the advanced cutting edge in this business that has gone from 2005 numbers of under 300 people in wineries to 800 now. In 15 years, that's a huge growth. And that's, I don't believe that's stopping. I think Oregon right now, if you look at the world of wine, it's the, it's the darling. It's the hot place to move to and grow to, uh, you know, grow in. And, and land values are still pretty affordable compared to everybody, everywhere else in fine wine world. Um, I see that changing, but yeah still a good place to move and invest in for outside investors and we see that you know with Domaine Drone and you know the folks moving here from France the folks moving here from California the folks moving here from Australia wherever mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. it's an investment opportunity from if you're deep if you're big in the wine business and Stoller being homegrown <clears throat> is one reason why I love this place so much is that Bill is from here, sees the uh, opportunity, is able to invest to scale, and ha is willing to invest in people mm -hmm. to get him there. And this place is wonderful for those reasons. So tell me how you got here. How I got here? Uh, Ten years at On Me. You know, I. I kind of work in these 10-year cycles, I guess. I, you know, I, I look at this at Anami. I'd spent 10 years there, and I felt it was time for a change, you know. And so, and uh, you know, we had done all we were going to do there. We planted all the grapes. I developed all the land. Our wines were excellent, and I am. I like to build things and grow things, businesses, land holdings, whatever, uh, plants. I like to see that growth, that change, that. Um, and this place is growing, and I thought it would be a good fit. I saw an opportunity. I saw a world-class vineyard. You know, I look at, I, I looked at um, a lot of the vineyards I was working in. If you want to kind of relate it to, to like a theater stage, right? You know, like on me, I felt was a, a black box of creative theater, and then you look at Stoller, it's kind of like Broadway main stage in some ways, and so. I thought it maybe it's time to give that a shot. And the, the opportunity, they called me and sought me out, and I said, yes, yes, this is going to be a good fit. I see. We didn't know we were go going to grow this like this at the time. That all changed in 2017, where we kind of put the pedal to the metal and 
started acquiring more land and acquired Shehalem, uh, the other half of Shehalem, and and took that brand on and and. Um, we started the chemistry program. We got into canned wine last, uh, that was 2018. Mm -hmm. We, uh, uh, Melissa has her history program of Eastern Washington, red, Big Reds. I had some experience there as well, working with the Pamplins. Uh, they had mm -hmm. a Big Red wine mm -hmm. facility at Pamplin Family. But I thought it was a good fit. The Purchase Fruit program here, I, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm doing more all that grower relations and contracting myself right now. We're, last year we brought in over 2,000 tons, somewhere like 2,400 tons. We grew almost 900 of it here. The rest of it was all purchased fruit for the, the five brands. Mm -hmm. And I like working with people. I'm not the vineyard manager anymore. Um, I'm not the viticulturist anymore. But I work with two great people who are David Myers, who's Joel Myers' son, vineyard manager, Erica Miller, who's from Dufer, Oregon, Patty Skinkus Lab, she worked with Patty for a while, Oregon State University vit grad, viticulturist, super sharp, really good at what she does. And with this team of three together, I feel like I'm lucky to be working with one of the better vit teams in the state right now. Very excited about what's going forward. Um, How do you define your role? My role is uh, just make sure the I's are dotted and the T's are crossed. Uh, make sure that our company is not put, you know, hanging itself out there with too much risk. So a lot of risk management now. Um, a lot of keeping smart, busy, dedicated, you know, hardworking people happy. That's a big job. And then. Uh, growing a business that from 40,000 cases when I got here to 160,000 last year we did processed. Um, that's incredible. That, that's a lot of fruit acquisition and meeting people and just knowing when something is appropriate. So spending a lot of time judging, you know, get, putting my opinion on vineyard sites that we may or may not purchase from strengthening relations you know unfortunately I'm in this position of trying to keep costs down or you know within the realm of the market driven price point so we're kind of just stuck with what we can sell certain wines and tiers for there's a lot of one thing I see here in the Willamette Valley is we've got a lot of very high quality pricey fruit out there and I know that other business entities like A to Z struggles with this. We're trying to get wine for the people. Bill Stoller wants wine to be affordable and for the people. We have this Dundee Hills bottling of Pinot Noir estate-driven fruit. Thirty-five, I think it's thirty-five dollars right now. But I mean, it's at a, a tier that would be up in the forty to fifty range if, it, if you know, he wants that to be down, and that's as low as I can get it with this, the farming operation here. Uh, and then you get out there into the, we've got the chemistry which sells I think for 20, 25, 30 somewhere on the shelf. That's a Willamette Valley purchased fruit and it's going to be allowing growers to, with good viticulture and more leaf pulling, get larger yields ripe. Um, and we see more and that more of that. Last year we, was a challenge for us with the way the weather turned. That's gonna be one in t uh, 10, hopefully. Last vintage, 13, I said, okay, maybe it's like one in seven, but um, yeah, it, it was, uh, 
Yeah, so that's going to be always the challenge is getting the, the price point right and working with growers. And we're going to build our estate up for the programs to get as much estate fruit grown as we can. Mm -hmm. um, but being part of the bigger picture and, and a business that's scaling to a level that can really bring Oregon into the world big players play. Like this is, the, I think, one of the only homegrown large producers that doesn't have outside investors. I mean, it's got an Oregon invest. It's 100% Oregon. Mm -hmm. I think the word is authentically Oregon, they, the term they use. And there's some truth to that. What's unique about the state vineyards here, and, and what is it you're judging when you're looking at, at outside vineyards you may or may not? So airflow, exposure to the sun, kind of the, the meso climate surrounding the area. Um, what's the wind do through here in the late season? A lot of it's just like, is this going to get ripe? It's okay. It's rolling north and in a pocket. It's, it's just not going to do what I need to do. Uh, you know, who's the viticulturist really matters. You know, how serious is the, is the owner of this vineyard about farming? Are they farming themselves for nothing, um, trying to keep things cheap and making mistakes along the way? Like, the people are really important in the system. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, the, a vine unmanaged is, is not going to put out the wine it's going to grow up a tree and hang a lot of babies, baby grapes, and it's going to never get ripe, you know, it'll get to like 20, 15 bricks. We're growing sugar, we're growing ripeness, we're growing flavor. And so the managers that I work with on outside um, purchase, purchased fruit, outsourced fruit sources, uh, that matters to me. Um, In-house, in we have control. This. It really has to do with, look at this exposure. It's full southern, and it rolls across to the west. Um, the rows are planted, you know, it's, it's a tight spacing on half of it. We have roughly like 60 or we have 70 acres of five-foot spacing. I'm not a big fan of the five-foot spacing. Five by, so it'd be a meter by five, I think they would call it. Uh, very difficult spacing. We've been very creative and innovative in how we can get machinery through there, and a lot, of, a lot of that has had to evolve to meet, meet, uh, you know, a lot of the European equipment that's shown up has really made a difference for this site now that, but it was tiny little tractors and labor intensive, and, and uh, still only getting two, two, two and a half tons per acre out of those all that mileage. There's almost one and a half miles in an acre of five foot spacing. There's one mile in seven foot spacing. Um, you know, the costs are huge on tight spacing. This this location is primo. I mean, it's, it's a good decision for a vineyard manager to pick a job that has a good site. You just look good. The, the site helps you. It's nothing to do with me. It's this site. It's just really awesome. And you know, a good site draws good talent. And you know, meaning the people that work with me, Erica and David, are very talented. And so they're here because of this site. Not, and Bill Stoller. But yeah. Uh, so when I look at this site, I see a lot of small changes we'd have to make to procure awesome, high levels, premium quality. When you're out judging other sites, you got to look at all the things that, you know, kind of are against it. 
a site, you know, um, location. What's the what's like a back? Like I said, the, the general climate around this region, say Silverton versus Van Duzer versus uh, Tualatin Valley and and uh, Southern Oregon, and then you know Southern Oregon, Eastern Washington. We are getting fruit from all those locations. So having a vast knowledge about you know the the regional climate, mm -hmm. what you can get away with. Um, always, always be open to learning. Um, paying attention to the year at, at hand, you know, like this year we're looking at having a, like an earlier bud break, so that starts the clock earlier. That means things might be really ripe, potentially going into harvest. Bloom is really the period we look at, but you know, all, taking the current information and putting it like this site's going to get super ripe maybe that we don't need as much super ripe fruit this year all comes into play when we're putting these contracts together and making these decisions and uh, and then yeah are you going to pull enough leaves when I ask you to pull more leaves <coughs> excuse me you know will you do that for me you know or is it going to be an argument I mean that that kind of stuff matters you know we if you're if you can tell the owner or grower wants to produce good quality and is honest those are the sites i'm going <coughs> to excuse me work with so with your with your background with live and uh and uh, and some more projects like that i'm curious mm -hmm. uh in your mind how do you define sustainability when it comes to to, to agriculture so sustainability to me is in, in intelligent farming it's uh it's it's integrating it's a systems approach to farming you're farming not just the you know a single vineyard you're farming look at this all this land see that hill up there with all those native trees and plums and forest on it that's part of this farm system and that connects to a valley with more trees and, and um, biodiversity running down the whole hill and right up to the neighbor's border and that allows for a river of biodiversity in different insect populations, different mammalian species, hawks, habitat for um, what was here before the settlers cleared everything, or actually original peoples cleared everything by burning everything out for hunting grounds. So, but we're we're taking it here at Stoller back to that original kind of mix in certain areas that we've designated for bio, bi, uh, biological re, re, reforestation. So oak savanna on the far side, we're returning it to oak savanna and in the lower swales of wet the, where the creeks run, putting ponderosa pine. Yeah. Those are the two tree species that were here when Europeans got here, and there was a ten thousand years of evolution and adaptation in that silviculture system in place that we're going to try and restore and rebuild. Uh, uh, European settlers cut all the wood down and cleared everything to make room for agriculture. You know, not they weren't hunter-gatherers. So we're trying to mix a little bit of both in and and when you, I, uh, that's one, one facet to it. So looking at the farm as a whole system from the fertilizers we put on landscape, they need to be the, you know, not too much, not indulgent, just the right amount. Uh, you're, you're looking to farm for the, the system. You're not, grapes are not, a, they're inherently a sustainable crop. They don't need full flood irrigation. They don't need excessive fertilizer. In fact, they need less of all those things to produce quality. So grapes inherently are the ideal sustainable agricultural monoculture crop. Um, 
we're not growing wheat or you know cannellina seed or petroleum corn in between our rows here so we're not a dual crop system but we do promote floor flowering species all through the vineyard we'll you'll come back here in the spring and and you'll see tons of flowering plants and species in between in the rows bringing the beneficial insect populations up inside the vineyard allowing us to spray less so using using natural systems to cr create the balanced controls of of uh, insects and disease pressures and then you know instead of using chemistry as your first line of defense you're going to use mechanical means so in real cultivators instead of herbicide you know or rotating these means of mm -hmm. operations using strong IPM um, but doing less instead of you know and thinking about things before you just feel the wind and say yeah I think we'll just dump 10,000 pounds of lime in here today no, having a reason, you know, and using science and uh, being judicious and thoughtful about this system that you're trying to maintain balance in is the, is, from the farming lens, part of sustainability. That said, there's a, an overlording, uh, you know, whole idea of sustainability about longevity, mm -hmm. the business side of things. Mm -hmm. Like, there's a, there's a winery in vineyard in Germany that's been producing for 900 years in the same location and Bill Stoller he says he wants this place to last at least 200 years I mean what's not sustainable about a sustained ag system on the same piece of dirt for hundreds of years that's what I'm trying to build the framework or make, make sure the framework's in place mm -hmm. here um, and our agricultural systems will likely evolve and change and uh, science is going to play a big role in that. We're going to be learning more and more about a lot of the harmful pesticides from this 40s, 50s, for the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s that were used on in our agricultural systems in general. Um, we're not going to uh, use those here. You know, we're not, we're, we're way past that stage. What we're doing is looking to take more organic approaches where they're effective. We're looking to burn less diesel where we can. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're not getting back into horses here, but you know, it gets talked about. <laughs> I live an hour away, so I need, I can't do horses. <laughs> I had horses as kids, I love horses, but not for farming. <laughs> uh, through your work in live and, and your now experience sort of seeing the industry from that perspective, uh, you talked about 30 to 40 percent of vineyards being live certified mm -hmm. or uh, yeah. have you how have you seen the progression of sustainability, organic, biodynamic types of farming uh, in your time in the industry? I almost feel like now I'm seeing it um, not be as talked about in Oregon, which is concerning to me. Um, at least, at least in the sphere I'm in, which is, I'm not on the live board anymore, so maybe that has something to do with it. But I feel like there was a strong push through the early 2000s, you know, a lot of attention to it in our industry to make sure it was, had a major important place in the agricultural system. In 2008 at Live, we put the winery side of the certification together, and that made a huge change. That program hasn't grown, grown as much as I would like to have seen it, but you know, 
I can't really speak to the reasons why. It's a lot of paperwork. You know, it's a lot of tracking. It's a lot of busy work. Um, and is there value in it? What I hope is that consumers will really truly come to understand and appreciate the value and the heartfelt efforts that are put into the, the live farming system. Um, but that's going to require individual wineries to get out there and talk about how much they're doing mm -hmm. so that live gets more and then live and then consumers start asking for live wines and you know that's going to be a hard push always uh, when all the consumer really starts out wanting is does it taste good and oh, that's a nice label you know <laughs> can I afford it can I afford it uh, those three things then you know maybe sustain <coughs> sustainability <coughs> excuse me becomes the the uh, next most important part and um, I still have a strong feeling for sustainably grown wines or people who are taking care of their land you know there's a whole hot topic about getting rid of Roundup right now and that's what we've done here at Stoller we've, we're done with Roundup um, um, maybe not Roundup I'll say glyphosate just you know because Roundup's a brand but Glyphosate chemistry is no longer used here, and I think that's a pretty strong move. If we could get the whole state to get on board with that, that'd be pretty. That'd be pretty awesome. You know, there are, there are other tools, so we're going to use those. Um, yeah. You talked a little bit earlier about the biggest change you've seen in the industry is the yield yield yeah. quality. Is there what, what are the other, what are the, some of the other changes you've you've seen, uh, and what does the industry look like now in 2020 compared to when you got into it? I see more big business here. You know that's that's a huge difference. That scale idea is really coming to play. There's more competition. There's you know the pie the the consumer. Okay, so yeah, consumer sales have grown, but have they grown enough with the amount of supply that's out there? That really is just a hard thing to balance in this business, is oversupply and over-demand, right? The economic swings of this business are risky. Um, we built a warehouse here at Stoller to kind of store wine, more wine when we have too much, you know, and we're I hope I like to see the warehouse empty. By the way, <laughs> but um, yeah, that's been a big one: is watching this industry scale, and potentially, I I'm really worried that if you're not growing, you're gonna be you're gonna have a hard time. You know, if you don't have the iconic brand recognition, getting into the business and starting out of this is gonna be <coughs> much more difficult in the future if you're only going to a certain level. It's hard to jump in and just have instant iconic cult wine status in Oregon anymore. Mm -hmm. It seemed like for a while there it was, you, oh, you're from Oregon, you're instant cult status. I think that's, we're fading out of that. And that bigger businesses are going to get bigger and, and uh, smaller businesses are gonna have a more of a struggle. Mm -hmm. And we see that in our politics right now, which is very difficult to digest, kind of being in the middle of that with the wine board and wine growers association more. Um, where the future will take us, I hope that we can find a happy balance where all parties are taken care of. 
myself, I feel like more of a centric, centrist person, but both in politics and and from a business politic standpoint. Um, I'm looking for the best out of everything, and I hope that we can get there in this industry where everybody feels listened to and taken care of. You know, I think we have to get bigger. Right now, on the from the research side, just looking at it from the wine board research end of things, Oregon Wine Board, we have you know anywhere between three hundred fifty to four hundred fifty thousand dollars to spend on research pro pro programs here in our state. And research, research, you know, that's not very much money for an industry bringing in billions to the state. It's really concerning to me that we, you know, research advances. It's it's what put us. It gave us the cutting edge. All this leaf pulling and crop manipulation and, and co uh, cover crop management. And these were all ideas that came from research that was a priority um, for the select few going into the 80s. And Steve Price and Barney Watson made huge strides and changes. Uh, before that it was Porter Lombard and others. We, we drafted on their uh, research for so long and then you know there's Koblet out of the out of Switzerland and others that we've always grabbed and Richard Smart you know kind of took over some of those ideas as his own um, I think we need to double down and research the next next wave put some you know Give us $700,000 state. Let's get $700,000 set aside for research so we can really dig into this microbiome with some, with some, uh, with some money behind it. You know, you see the, you see the federal government dumping do billions of dollars into the microbiome project and the human brain project. That type of information changes. The, the type of wine. Wine is a biological beast, and the microbiological realm of grapes and what and in ferments, that's a huge unknown to us. And we've seen um, the work of, I think it's Jeremy Weiss out of uh, out of uh, Linfield that that has shown that you know sustainable farming and biodynamic farming and conventional farming all taste different. Why? The invisible. He's shown that that's just a, that's just blowing the lid off of the future. If we can really dig into that and find out what makes the fine wines of our various subregions of Oregon, and understand how to farm with and encourage certain species of biodiversity by certain types of instead of feeding the the vine nit nitrogen or or uh, zinc. Let's feed the biology the thing it needs to, to advance the one that makes the flavors better. You know, why was that vintage so good? It uh, could have been the great weather we had at harvest, but it could have been the fact that we hit it with this vitamin at, you know, that fed the microbiology back in July. Mm -hmm. There's a whole world that we need to explore and we need more dollars for it. So that's a big charge of mine right now is to find more research dollars. Uh, or let's say first put a framework together to make sure our research dollars are spent effectively, wisely, and fairly across the state. But beyond that, get people more interested in the research that built this industry uh, 
in the, on the cutting edge and the discovery side of research in the microbiome realm. That's where it's got to go. You brought up your work with the OWA and OWB and, mm -hmm. and some of the difficulties right now. Uh, from your perspective, uh, what's causing issue? What, uh, what, 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 what's going to happen next? Oh, I don't know. I feel like a lot of it stems from the political climate of the United States of America versus the world versus whatever, right? You know, a lot of it's just this protectionist, nationalistic uh, climate, um, air of, of the world, and, and it's infecting our beautiful industry. Mm -hmm. um, you know, people align with, there's a splitting of sides inherently in the culture right now. And we saw some of that split occur over the last couple of years, um, over the last year really, uh, in, in the state politics. Um, federal politics for wine, I think we can all align on still for the most part, you know. Uh, we'd spent some time back in D.C. and, uh, you know, Oregon is still looked on favorably in, in the capital uh, for the reason that it, you know, that it, the wines are delicious and that's what everybody drinks there. But Oregon has kind of like some, uh, it's like, they, they call them the Oregon, uh, oh, what do they call them? It's like a gang, the Oregon gang or something like that. The Oregon crew has some pretty big political weight on the hill for some reason with Merkley and, and uh, all the others. I, I uh, yeah, it's good to see Oregon so, such a darling there. But you get back to the state, you have North versus South, you know. It's basically, it's Pinot versus every other red variety. And it's, uh, you don't hear a lot out from the Milton Freewater area. Those guys are pretty happy and aligned with Walla Walla. And you have the Gorge who grows a little bit of everything, you know, but the, you see a lot of this North versus South, or I'll just say Pinot versus every other variety. <coughs> and you see a lot of big business versus small business need. So big business typically wants less regulation or no regulation so they can get bigger. And small business wants regulation to keep the play, playing field fair and protect the brand, Oregon, whatever that would be. You see Willamette Valley Pinot Crew versus the Southern Oregon, <coughs> every other variety, Tempranillo and, and Syrah Crew, dividing up, wanting their piece of the pie, right? The tiny little tax, small taxed pie that we have to work with. OWA, <coughs> it's a dues-paying membership. We support PACs, we support political. Um, we try to meet the needs of the membership which it pays their dues and it's somebody from everywhere. Mm -hmm. um, Southern Oregon, I think, feels a little bit shafted in there. I, I, I think that's all changed and we've addressed that. I do believe that the decoupling of the OWA from the OWB has, is a great opportunity that we took. That is a long time coming. That's needed to happen for a long time. And I think this is, the OW, that makes both Entities so much stronger to have to get a, get rid of the questions around why are they the same board? I'll tell you why they were the same board because there weren't enough people here to serve on that many boards when they got going, and so it's just taken a long time to get them decoupled, and that's what the governor wanted, and so she want, Governor Brown wanted the OWB separate from the OWA, and we did it. We did it on her advice. Mm -hmm. 
And I think that's wise. I, I like it. Um, there will be confusion around that for many years to come. There were, there's been confusion around what the difference between the OWB and the OWB forever. Even now, people are still confused. Big leaders in the industry are still confused. So now it's all going to be nice and sparkling clear. And uh, yeah, we're going forward. We're going to go into tw uh, OWA will go into 2021 state legislator agenda with a plan that is that is heard from all around its constituency what what they would like to have and that's a membership driven program so it it, it will be playing to the members not to the entire state hmm. OWB will be driving um, will be working on the, the mandate improving its education to its, to the entire state that's what the governor wanted improving um, paying for research to advance our industry that's what we asked it's what we asked ourselves to pay for. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing is um, marketing. Making sure Oregon, and this is all of Oregon, not sub-regions, not just Willamette Valley, all of Oregon is launched to the wine universe in a positive, buy me, come here, pro-tourism sort of light, advancing the marketable aspects of what we are good at, which is quality wines, quality. You come here for quality, for craft, Marketing is the key, uh, a main tenet and a main component of the Oregon Wine Board. Polls were taken probably 10 years ago from the entire industry and that's what they asked for most. Sure. Yeah. But my area is research. That's what I'm here for. So where do you see yourself as you look ahead? Uh, your role here, your role in the industry in general? My role here is to grow this business to the point where Bill Stoller, Stoller says, that's good enough. Stop. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's what, that's what I'm here for. So I'm, I'm acquiring land, acquiring planted acreage, um, looking at following leads, working with the leadership team to come up with to meet the goals that they have set in making sure that we are buying the best fruit from our, our best from our business partners in the industry and growing the best fruit from our state holdings. Uh, we're putting a lot of energy into Shehalem Winery right now, not just Stoller. I'm really excited about the response to this rebranding of Shehalem, the new labels and the, the, the viticulture is kind of really making differences. The winemaking has changed and that's making huge differences. Just got a great score and I don't know what it is on our uh, 2017 Shehalem Mountains Corral Creek Vineyard, the old estate vineyard there at Veritas. Um, Pinot Noir, so it's a, like a 150 bottle or case release. Really good stuff. I love that vineyard, by the way. It tastes great. All Laurelwood soil. I'm kind of partial to Laurelwood soil. Maybe that's just because I'm from that side of the mountain and uh, working with the Ponzi's. What you taste first, maybe, is what you sticks with you the most. I like the style of wine. I like their Francois Frere barrels they use. If someone were to come to you and say they were interested in getting into the Oregon wine industry today, what would your words of wisdom to them be? Well, decide which area you love the most and be ready to work hard. <laughs> um, it is 
there's a lot of talent here right now um, in this industry where you know I get resumes and I'm just gosh I, where were you ten years ago uh, you know there's just a, a flood of really good talent right now and so really focus your your energies on the area that you want to be and be sure that you're ready to learn a lot um, be open to learning um, you know be 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 open to uh, the full experience beyond that. Don't be closed to the other sides of the business, but definitely have that focus when you get into this. So if it's viticulture, you know, we're looking at grads from uh, Oregon State, you know, keeping it homegrown. But we'll all, we won't turn away folks from New Zealand, you know, we won't Lincoln or uh, we won't turn away folks from UC Davis or, um, you know, Fresno. All that uh, all that matters. Experience, get you know, t just be prepared to spend a few years getting experience in a vineyard. It's not gonna, you're not, it's not gonna come to you. You're not gonna land the big job overnight. Um, maybe you are. I don't know. I, I don't see that happening as much as maybe it was when you know there were 300 wineries and there were nobody was coming here to work right mm -hmm. I landed in this job just having spent 10 years and in, in roses and you know <laughs> I don't know if that would even be impossible now with the way things are so get the degree and focus on the viticulture and have a plan and be prepared to use it uh, winemaking find a mentor you know, find a mentor and find a wine style that you love. Spend time drinking wine, talking about wine. You know, learn learn the flaws of wine. Uh, that's why you're in, in this business, first of all, is because likely wine drew you to it. And then there's the people. The people, uh, you know, there's not a lot of people fun people in the nursery industry. I'm just gonna say that there's a lot of fun people in this business, so that makes a huge difference. You know, the people you're around every day, you've chosen well, so you must be fun yourself. So be fun. <laughs> That's my other advice to you. Even beyond the wine industry, just, yeah, be, just be fun. Yeah, they just need to get the memo out there. <laughs> What's a memo? <laughs> exactly. Is that to me, right? Yeah. Uh, so all the questions that I have for you today. Is there anything I didn't ask that I should have? Anything we didn't cover? Oh, I just want to mention my family was um, part of the early days of this industry. My fa my family, not the Tashas, but yes, yes, the Tashas. Chuck Corey or Charles Corey moved here from California in '63 or '4. And uh, moved into Forest Grove right across from my grandpa, and then bought the place up on David Hill. And his kids, Brad and Charlie, went to Forest Grove at the same time, the same age as all my uncles, my dad, my uh, my mom, everybody. And all of that family spent time up at the Corey's farm, up on David Hill. You know, picking prunes making wine, planting blackberries. Friends of the family helped him plant that first Pinot. My uncle helped him make his first vintage out of some fruit he found in a backyard down the hill. My uncle Mike stomped the grapes from some wine they picked. It might have been Concord for all we knew. That was 64. And um, all that's still like really 
is I feel connected from that that experience, and it's really exciting for me to like know some of the insiders on the early days from mm -hmm. the Corey's lens. Mm -hmm. They all, you know, Cor Corey let. Uh, Joel Myers, they all knew each other down in California and moved up here in the early 60s from the same block, um, supposedly. I'm not sure where that was, but um, all my uncles talk favorably about that family. You know, my Uncle Mike, last night I was talking to him about this interview, and he's like, Yeah, Charles Corey didn't really have a sense of humor. Uh, he's kind of mean to those kids, but I, I sure loved working up there. You know, he's got a, he's got a, there's a place in that on that farm where they buried like thousands of bottles of wine, like it's a treasure chest, uh, a treasure chest, and a secret burial ground of the first bottles of Oregon Pinot on that farm somewhere. He's like I, Terry Rowe. This guy Terry Rowe from Gales Creek. He could tell you where where it's buried. He worked there. He worked on the wine with him. But boy, I, I sure, sure miss Brad. I, I, I saw him at a at a, a reunion the other day. It's good to see Brad. So, yeah, it's still going on. Just just people from Oregon deciding to make wine, or people moving to Oregon deciding to make wine. And wow, who knew? So when are you gonna go digging on David Hill? I'm not. I'm not sure that wine went into the ground because it was good. <laughs> I'm just going to say that. <laughs> but I sure am curious after, I, that still looks like, why am I still thinking about that? <laughs> well, thank you so much. Thank you. For taking time today, for sharing your story with us, sharing your perspectives. Sure. Uh, really do appreciate this. And oh, it was a pleasure. I, I've been keeping that all a secret for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> now the world knows. Now, oh. now, now you're going to be judged. Oh, please don't watch this video. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. We'll Thank let you off the hook. Yeah. Thank, you. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield College. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. And a special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.